0: Welcome to Acme Talks and Live Events. You are listening to a podcast from the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. This talk has been recorded in front of a live studio audience. This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes, which may not be suitable for younger audiences. And the opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME.
1: Hi, everyone. My name's Rob Graham. I am a producer here at ACME. I'd like to welcome you to Studio One this evening and acknowledge we are gathered on traditional land of the Wurundjeri people and pay my respect to the elders of the Kulin Nation, both past and present. So, for those of you who aren't aware of the program, Talking TV is ACME's ongoing series of events exploring the small screen. As part of the program, we have previously looked at everything from Game of the Thrones and Scandinavian crime dramas to Veronica Mars and Broad City. Tonight though, we take a fascinating look at the first season of True Detective and discuss what could be in store for season two. We've brought together our own amazing group of media detectives for tonight's talk, and leading them will be this evening's host, writer, broadcaster, and critic Jess Maguire. Jess has formerly been a co host on Triple R's Breakfasters Show and the editor of pop culture website Defamer Australia. She has written for a range of assorted publications including The Sunday Age, ABC's The Drum, J Mag, and Time Out was featured in the Woman of Letters anthology and appears regularly on the airwaves popping up on 774, ABC, Melbourne and 720, ABC, Perth's drive show. Jess has also guest lectured on all things new media at RMIT Victoria University and the University of Melbourne, has appeared as a speaker at the Wheeler Centre and co-hosts a weekly rock and pop culture trivia night at the Bee East. She is also no stranger to Studio One here at ACME, having appeared on numerous panel discussions, everything from the TV show Glee to the hard-boiled world of Melbourne's criminal underbelly. Tonight's guests include Dr. Rodney Tavira, Karen Pickering, and Associate Professor of Screen Arts at La Trobe University, Terry Waddell, all of whom you will be introduced to very shortly. But before we begin, a few spots of housekeeping. Uh, Firstly, we are recording tonight's session to podcast, so if you could turn off all your mobile phones, that would be great. The doors you entered, the studio through are now locked, so if you need to leave the space... Yeah, that's exciting, isn't it? So if you need to leave the space for a bathroom break uh, or anything this evening, please just pop out to the side and uh, Usher will lead you with, by a torch to the Actually, expo- Usher,
2: the singer, will lead yeah. you. He's around the corner. It's very exciting.
1: And finally, we will have some time for questions at the end. So if you have any burning issues to discuss with the panel, please do so and have them ready for that. Uh, but for now, please join me in welcoming Jess and the panel.
2: Thank you very much, Rob. Resumes are quite long when you hear them read out, aren't they? Just kind of go, I mean, I, I feel like I should cut a little bit out of it, but I do feel pretty pleased okay. that Critic, Critic has just made it on there. So thanks, Rob. Fancy. Um, now, uh, as Rob said, we're going to do Q- uh, Q&As at the end, but what we're going to do a little bit differently is that, you know, because sometimes it's hard to hold on to questions and by the time it gets to the end, you just feel like your, your momentum's have sort of failed a little bit. So if you do have anything burning within you after you hear one of our speakers talk, maybe just put your hand up, we'll, we'll throw out to it, and then, you know, we'll, just a short thing, not looking for like Writers' Festival statements where they talk about, the yeah, you we're know, not looking for like long, lengthy sort of monologues, just if you have any quick questions that you want to bounce off our, our speakers, we'd love to have them. Um, should and then. Otherwise, you're welcome to hold on to the end when we do like a big general Q&A. Now, for two months last year, the first two months of last year, the Zeitgeist was obsessed with a show called True Detective, which is pretty much why you're all here. I'm assuming everyone in this room has watched True Detective. Is that accurate? Has anyone not watched True Detective? <laughs> no, there's no one, right? There's no, unless someone just got dragged by the... Ro- have you really alert. not? <laughs> How did they get, how did, Yeah, it's too late now, you can't watch it on the day, it's, a, it's an eight hour series,
3: well anyway,
2: well, for, let me tell you a little bit about it, you're going to get really ruined for you tonight, <laughs> now for, for eight episodes we were obsessed, what was with Woody Harrelson's accent, is this peak <laughs> reconnaissance, what the hell is this show even about, and I love a TV show that even four or five episodes in a lot of people are still like, I'm not quite sure what's happening, I love it. Um, so, look, doesn't matter. A year on, and it's actually a month to the day before the second series is about to make its debut on HBO, but we're going to go back to Carcosa. We're going to go back with our three guests this evening, Karen Pickering, Rodney Tavira, and Dr. Terry Waddell. Please make them welcome again. <laughs> Strap yourself in. I've got another bio. I just figure if you achieve these things, you deserve to have them read out loud. That's what I think. Karen Pickering is going to be talking to us about stuff, I'm going to leave that to you to explain, about stuff. Karen is the creator and the host of Cherchez La Femme, a monthly talk show of popular culture and current affairs from an unapologetically feminist angle. She's also the director of the Girls On Film Festival, or Goff, as you can call it now that he's dead, the actual Goff, um, a live mixtape of movies, parties, feminism for people who want to see women and girls in powerful roles on the big screen. Her work has appeared in The Guardian, The Age, Overland, Crikey, The Drum and New Matilda. She's appeared on The Project, ABC News Breakfast, ABC2's Big Ideas, Triple J, Radio National, ABC 774 and at the Wheeler Centre, as well as the Melbourne Writers Festival, the Emerging Writers Festival, Boffa, what's Boffa Film Festival? Breath of fresh air. I like it, mm-hmm. Boffa fril- Film. It sounds really kind of a bit ocker, Boffa. Go, like go, the, go hang out gone. to the Boffa. Yeah. Um, and Amnesty International Stop Violence Against Women Film Festival and she's a jury member for the Human Rights and Arts Film Festival. There's a lot of film festivals in your life, Karen. Uh, She's a regular culture club columnist for Sheilas, the monthly publication of the uh, Victorian Women's Trust and she tweets at that pickering. It's a lot of achievements. Let's hear what she has to say about True Detective. Thanks.
4: Okay, so let's go back to that time that Jess just mentioned, when True Detective hysteria hit. And I was thinking about that a lot, about how it, it became such an instant phenomenon. And we're kind of used to that as consumers of TV now, where we, there aren't that many shows that get a chance to be a kind of slow burn. You know, they're, they're released into the wild. Everyone loses their shit over them. Everyone tells everyone, you must watch this. And True Detective, I think, had a kind of atmosphere and energy around it that was unlike other shows. Um, So given that initial um, explosion of interest around it, I was still pretty reluctant to watch it. And truthfully, um, it was because I just thought, do I need to see some more middle-aged white guys having an existential crisis over some dead women? Whoa, tough audience. Um, and, uh, and... Well, the answer is yes, I did. <laughs> um, and... Uh, but what I was getting initially was that, that there was so much about the show that people were excited about that, but that also it, it still very much had intact that kind of Madonna-whore dichotomy where women could be wives or sex workers. Um, that it had more dead women than live women <laughs> in the whole series. Um, there were a few things keeping me away, but there was a persistent kind of, uh, I think, recommendation for it. And it became persuasive, and I thought that in the end it was really um, the idea that this this show had set people's imaginations alight and that had had done something um, really... Unusual and innovative, you know, within the genre. So I kind of, in the end, um, was worn down, and uh, and I ended up, and I ended up thinking things to myself, like, you know, what, are, like some of the other shows that you've really loved, like Deadwood and The Wire and Sopranos and Mad Men, have really had men as their focus and have been made by men. And um, and as a feminist, I don't, I, I feel like, you know, looking at depictions of masculinity is just as interesting. As looking at depictions of femininity. And, um, but the other thing was that people, I remember someone saying to me, um, you've got to watch it because it's got Woody Harrison and Matthew McConaughey in it and they're movie stars. I remember that and I was like, yeah they are. <laughs> <laughs> they're, so they're movie stars. Um, and I, but, but this, funnily enough, this is like the McConaughey and Harrison that I love. Um, they've really spent most of their careers being quite, you know, celebrated for being these kind of lovable buffoons. Um, and I really dig that about them.
3: You can smell the wind. know,
4: right. Like, seriously, there's no way they're not extremely high in that picture. Um, so for people who don't know, this is from the movie Surfer Dude. Uh, surfer, comma, dude. Um, which, if you haven't seen, I recommend just because it's such a stinker, um, and I love movies that are just so bad they're good. Um, and they're, they also teamed up for Ed TV, and um, less memorably, less memorably than Ed TV, <laughs> <laughs> the Newton Boys. Um, so there's a there's a kind of lineage, a genealogy of these two working together, um, which makes it, when you look at what that backstory is, it makes it all the more extraordinary the casting of True Detective and that it was so effective. Um, and that you had, um, the, you know, I, I wanted to show you this picture to give you a bit of perspective on the McConaussons <laughs> and just how far he's come. And also to remind you that Woody Harrelson really, you know, his first job was playing a bartender called Woody <laughs> on Cheers um, and that we were talking earlier about when, when was Woody Harrelson ever a sex symbol and I argued there was a small window in which he was unarguably a sex symbol when he was supposedly married to Demi Moore and Robert Redford stole her from him in indecent proposal. Um, and maybe white men can't jump. But again, to put in perspective, that these are now these, are now these guys who were taken so seriously and yet not very long ago they were, um, they were doing this. Um, so, but really that drew me in. And I thought, actually, you're welcome, PS, for that picture. Um, I actually thought, I've always thought that they looked quite alike and um, that there was always a kind of uh, nice energy between them and that they played off each other really well and so that was really what drew me in to True Detective and wanting to see how that stunt casting in a way would work. And I did a little bit of research for tonight and found out that actually um, McConaughey was cast as Marty originally. and. That seems astonishing now, um, but that McConaughey wanted the role of Rust so desperately that he lobbied really, really hard um, to the writer, Nick Pizzolatto, and he wrote, like, you know, five-page briefs about the character and kind of did all this research into existential philosophy and so on to sort of prove that he could play Rust. Um, And... uh, And there's a great quote uh, that I found in Variety magazine where he was asked, why did you want the character of Ross so much? And he said, I wanted to get in that dude's head. And I love a character who monologues. And I was like, (laughs) well, you got a character who monologues. Uh, uh, But, yeah, to think of um, McConaughey playing uh, Marty is a really weird kind of head fuck now. Um, But, yeah, so then Woody Harrelson is brought in after that. um, And... I wanted to tell you about the the weird way in which I ended up watching the series, which is that I got a lot of... I got a huge amount of enjoyment out of it. And I really loved so much about it, like, the mood and the kind of tense um, atmosphere and the look of it. it was, it's stunning. There's no doubt that it's extremely well-crafted. Um, and it's good at this point to remind um, everyone that, you know, just because you love things doesn't mean you can't criticise them. <laughs> and um, the gender politics of this show are, like, pretty execrable. But uh, that said, I actually found a really satisfying feminist reading of it. And it's one of those things where sometimes the producers of... of or the, ..the artists or the auteurs um, that produce cultural um, items don't know how you're going to receive them. And they can't really control that, and that's the really beautiful thing about it. So whether they meant to or not, I actually really enjoyed this series as a complete condemnation of toxic masculinity. (laughs) Um, That I ended up seeing Marty and Rust almost as a kind of dual character, they're like two sides of one coin and that they are these two quite complete expressions of toxic masculinity um, in a way that... That, like I said, I found really enjoyable. And so, to take you through it, I just thought I'd say, I'd start with a few questions. So the first one is, where do we find them? So when we find Marty and Rust, um, well, of course we find them in two places at once, two different timelines. But um, initially, we find Marty happy. He's fine. He's happy. He's he's the all-American man. He's got a wife and children and a great house. He's got a great job that he's really good at. Um, and he epitomises a lot of the, uh, I think, aspirations of masculinity, certainly certainly in American culture. Um, but uh, you get the sense that <laughs> things are going to go downhill rapidly, and they do. Um, but when we find Rust, he's already quite broken. He's a kind of... A- another expression of masculinity, of toxic masculinity, I think, because he's kind of... He's kind of emotionless. You know, he's someone who has been hollowed out. He's lost his wife. He's lost his child. He's lost the things that made him um, more of a man. And so Marty is kind of all affect, all emotion. He's all gut. He really strides through the world thinking, um, how do I feel? And I feel like this and I propound that this is correct. And he views himself as highly moral when in fact we find out quite quickly that he's the opposite. Um, Whereas Rust kind of is almost dragged through the world, reluctantly. And I think that that's another trope of masculinity as well, that Rust is the kind of broken man. He's the nihilist. He he ends up becoming um, the, the solitary figure who, who whose only friends are, you know, the people he tends bar for. Um, and so the next question is, where do we follow them? Where do we go with these characters? Um, I... I think that generally speaking both of them actually end up going down a path that, uh, going down paths that are parallel and they end up going down quite violent destructive paths and I think Marty in particular is the classic um, story of toxic masculinity run rampant because Marty's violence and destruction is all outward. And you notice throughout the series that the times that Marty really loses his shit is when his masculinity is threatened. When some sense of himself as a man is being questioned, his, his, his wife is interested in someone else, his daughter is screwing um, two guys in a car, um, he's got to carry tampons home from the bar. Oh, Marty. Um, and he kind of has this... Um, this, this rage that's just always ready to, to be triggered by any question of his manhood, um, and certainly around his lover and um, her boyfriend that um, has quite disastrous consequences. So, but Rust is no less destructive and violent. This is the thing that I found really interesting is that but all of Rust's violence is visited on himself. He, it goes inward, which is another kind of, I think, cost of what we expect men um, to do is to be really estranged from their emotional life and to not have the luxury of human emotions like um, sadness or um, fear or love. And Russ kind of becomes this shell. Um, I also thought, it didn't occur to me throughout watching the series, but it did occur to me in the research for this that the names are Marty Hart and Russ Cole, like, he's got a lump of coal as a heart or, like, he's rusty. Like, it's so it's so literal and so obvious. But um, when you're watching it, it's, it feels a little bit more subtle. Um, but the, the, they they have these um, parallel paths and those paths are really intertwined throughout the whole series. There's, um, if you don't know, there's a lot of slash fiction <laughs> written about Marty and Rust. Um... There's a lot of people who really, really need to see them sleep together. <laughs> um,
2: so you are going to talk about the male gaze. Yeah.
3: Cool.
4: <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, I recommend reading some of it. Like, some of it's fantastic. But, it's, um, but it is still always this kind of, uh, this, this idea of them being, you know, mirroring each other and them being um, these two men stuck in this impossible situation in a kind of broke-back mountain anyway. way. But they have, um, they have, these, um, they have these, uh, these women between them, in a way. Um, and certainly the, the wife becomes like the, the actual archetype of the woman who comes um, between two men. So um, the next question I was going to ask was, where do we leave them? Where are we? Where do we leave them? So we follow them... Um, in a pretty rapid, well, downward spiral. And then when we leave them, um, we find that they're both pretty broken, pretty hollowed out, and their lives have not benefited in any way from this upholding of uh, masculine ideals. But they kind of, I think probably to the joy of people who wrote a lot of that slash fiction, they're reconciled. (laughs) they come back together in this really powerful way, I think, um, that I found really satisfying and really enjoyable. I know a lot of people really hated the finale for its resolution of the actual crime, <laughs> but I found it really emotionally resonant. Um, so just, I don't want um, to go too far into it, but I wanted to just quickly touch on how women operate in the series by, by contrast um, to this romantic in the kind of baronic sense, this romantic relationship between uh, Rust and Marty being the major feature, I think probably more important even than any crimes that are committed. Um, How do women operate in this story? Well, they they operate as vehicles to understand things about the male characters. That's actually like most shows. (laughs) It's not... uh, at least this show, this show has so much to recommend it that I found it a little bit odd that um, after seeing the massive feminist backlash against this show and then watching it, I found it a little bit odd how much the criticisms, criticisms of it could really be aimed at most shows on TV. Um, women are usually kind of there to represent something about the men and they operate as symbols and ciphers a lot. Um, certainly the, the, the missing girls um, are these kind of phantoms that haunt the show and yet the women who are actually there and present don't really fare any better than the women who are invisible. So I think it's, um, yeah, it's Rust that says at some point, we were talking about some of the iconic lines of the series, but Rust says at some point these women and girls are going missing and nobody notices and nobody cares. Which felt really meta to me, <laughs> in terms of the show and in terms of the culture of TV and the culture of um, and you know, American popular culture. Um, but Rust almost has a kind of her- heroism around it because he won't he won't let it go. Again, another masculine trope: his protectiveness, his kind of um, need to save these women. So, uh, yeah, ha- that's how women operated in the first season of True Detective. Um, I was going to mention that I was extremely excited to hear that they've signed Rachel McAdams for season two um, to be one of the main characters. Um, And so that, I think, that makes me feel as though women certainly are going to have a different uh, presence in season two. Um, And I'm really hopeful about that. But um, I don't know what... what, For Woody and Marty, um, what I'm hoping is that they... Are able to get back to their roots and um, maybe maybe star in the remake of Full House. Um, judge, judging by this picture, but but maybe that um, yeah that that they'll make more, more movies together that will kind of you know um, produce more images like this. But yeah, um, I, I'm looking forward to to, to 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 season two and to seeing um, the role of women and the role of men and the way that men and women interact, be a little bit more complex and a little bit more full than what we saw in season one. That, clearly that is just completely gratuitous. <laughs> I
2: just... So do you Forgive think... me. <laughs> yeah, from your research that you've been doing on this mm-hmm. topic, did you get any sense that Nick Pizzolatto... Is Pizzolatto mm-hmm. that's how you say it? Yeah. Um, that he was taking on board some of the, that criticism or at least the feedback from feminists about the way that women were interpreted in the show? Or do you think that... The, the presence of women and the way that they did it was actually kind of a, an intentional way of telling the story of, of Rust and Marty.
4: I don't think that it was necessarily intentional, but I do think that there's a re- there's a pretty strong reading of it that the show is depicting what actually happens to women. Yeah. And that certainly in this in this um, now this we're talking about really serious stuff, and I've got this picture there. Hang on, Go maybe backwards. I'll put it back. Go back. Yeah, that's better. That. <laughs> um, that they um, that. It would be impossible to make a show like this without being aware of the gender politics of it, um, you would think, but also that it's... I don't think it's that the producers necessarily were trying to make a huge statement, but they were trying to make something that was realistic. Mm. Um, It has that kind of uh, horror-fantasy augmented reality uh, as well, but many parts of it are totally truthful and totally have have a kind of emotional truth to them. with regard to women and what it would be like to be a woman living in this place at this time. So, I don't know. I mean, I think certainly there was definitely a lot of um, defensiveness and reaction on the part of the showrunners um, when people said, this is a this is a show that is really sexist. Um, and when Rachel McAdams was announced as part of season two, it was kind of wheeled out as
2: um, proof yeah. that the show- She's uh, not playing a murder victim though, right? <laughs> she's actually playing a character that I don't think she dies talks. in the first
4: episode. Yeah, um, great. She's not on a slab. Um, that would cost a lot to get Rachel McAdams to come in and just be on a slab. But, um, but they did... Uh, for people who don't know, True Detective has been signed as, a, like, an anthology series. So every se- season will be its own, discrete, separate story. Um, and that, that part of that was having only eight episodes in the first season as well. That it would be these sort of small, perfectly formed stories that would take as different... Um, take take totally different um, perspectives and the se- season two is set in California. So it's um it's not for people who loved the the southern gothic aspect that mm. you just have to rewatch season one.
2: Um <laughs> over and over <laughs> Or watch True Blood. <laughs> yeah. No no one needs to watch True Blood. It's okay. We wouldn't do oh, it. the to first you. few seasons. Yeah, <laughs> but then you shut then you shut it down. Yeah. Um Terry, Rodney, are there any comments that you felt or
0: Well it was interesting when this was put to Pizzolatto and I was reading that he was saying that the women were viewed through the eyes of Martin Rust and that was one of the ways that he justified um, the objectification of all of them. <laughs> like so. And if you look at the opening sequence as well, every single woman in that is objectified. And I can follow that to a certain degree but I'm, I, I'll talk about something else. <laughs> it might
4: yeah, and they're also in the opening credits. They're also um, they're also disembodied. They're just parts of women. <laughs> there's like an, mm. there's like some feet and a, like a, an ass.
5: They're literally and fetishized. like a stomach.
4: They're literally mm. just like chopped up yeah. and and and, in, and hypersexualized. Yeah. Um, and so the the show is at least extremely honest about its about its focus. And as you say, Pizzolato was saying, this is about this is about these two characters and how they view the world around them and. Certainly, scenes with Marty, um, in particular, I find extremely disturbing and but but satisfying as a viewer because they really capture how Marty views his world. Marty is is a kind of caged animal.
0: He's so unconscious. Yeah, it's really. like walking unconscious. Yeah, he doesn't mm. think about anything. He's wound I mean, up like a top. Russ too thinks about everything. He's- it's yeah, such
2: yeah. fun at a party, that Ross. <laughs> yeah. And not much fun when he's not at a party. <laughs> it's Thursday, I hope you're all drinking, it's your day off. That was, that was what I just remembered from the show today. I was like, that's right, it's Thursday. Thursday. Anyway. Um, does anyone here have anything that they'd like to say before we get to Rodney? Or if you do, but you want to hold on to it, keep it in your back pocket, you're welcome to do that too. I shouldn't answer for you, did you want to say anything? Okay, no, great, that's exactly what I wanted you to say. Uh, Everything let's... I said was completely correct. Uh, <laughs> that's exactly what you should draw from that silence, Karen. They yeah. couldn't agree more. Um, or the... Uh, no. Um, OK, the well, let's, let's go over to Rodney mm-hmm. now. So, Rodney Tavira is a lecturer in American studies in the United States Study Centre at the University of Sydney. Held a PhD in English from the University of Sydney and he was previously a lecturer in English at the University of New South Wales. So you're legit when it comes to English is what we're getting from this. I can speak English. Pretty good. Very good. Now, Rodney researches American literature, film, television and culture and he's published on Contemporary American Fiction, Literary Responses to 9-11 and the Interrelation of Cinema, Photography, Painting and Literature and he's currently working on a book manuscript provisionally titled The Cinematic Face, American literature. Now, I think that what, what is going to make Rodney really exciting for me, and hopefully for the rest of you as well, is that if you've been watching this show, and part of that buzz that we've all got about True Detective was there are so many nods and literary references in this television series that I believe that, like, um, what, what was his name? Uh, Robert Robert Chambers, Chambers' The King in Yellow yep. went up the Amazon...
5: It did, it list did. of which People, everyone
2: read it and went I still don't get exactly, it. Exactly. Yeah. Still don't get what yep. this shows about. Yeah. So, here's hoping that you with all that wisdom and all those years doing English <laughs> at various degree at various universities yep. give us some answers Rodney. I'll do the
5: literary slew thing. <laughs> I appreciate that. This. So, I I've called this uh, True Detectives Go West in Hollywood South There's a few things going on there west south obviously uh i want to argue that it's a a kind of Western, ultimately, that combines a European Gothic literary tradition that you were talking about earlier with an American Western tradition, and the South is kind of a perfect place for these two things to intersect. And there is the king in yellow. Let's just look at that scary shit for a little bit. (laughs) Before I mangle my uh, epigram, which comes from uh, Robert W. Chambers. So excuse my French. (laughs) Dieu plus' que, voilà toute la différence." So begins the repair of reputations. the first story in Robert W. Chambers' "The King in Yellow." There's, there it is. The book was first published in 1895, in the wake of the popularity of True Detective. Uh, as just said, it shut up the Amazon bestseller list, as fans of HBO's acclaimed television series consulted it to solve the mystery of a serial killer or killers or cadre of killers uh, operating Louisiana. So re-watching the show as, I, as I've done uh, in the last week, it's actually kind of hilarious to hear the way the king in yellow is peppered across the narrative. So the first time, say, he said something about a king, and the next time, the, the, the king's y- y- yellow. And then this sort of kind of builds in then carcosa, and then like, people look at each other and say, how do you know, did you read the book too? It's kind of what the characters are doing at each other in the show. So what does a stylish contemporary police procedural starring, as we all know, Matthew McGonaghy, Michelle Monaghan and Woody Harrelson have to do with the 120-year-old collection of horror stories and popular romances? As I mentioned, many tried to discover the connection by buying the book before the series had ended in an attempt to solve the mystery. They would have been perplexed by the popular romances that make up half the collection. I've read them all. They involve subjects like Parisian painters leaving their loves with but a kissed rose. That one's called uh, Rue Barret, if you're interested. And they also find love under a bombardment by the Prussian army. That's called the Street of the First Shell. And that's our boy Robert W. Chambers looking. Everyone looks creepy now in the context of this show. Every image (laughs) of someone just looks kind of scary, and you don't want to be alone in a room with this man by the look of him. But the translation of that epigraph is, do not sneer at the insane, their madness lasts longer than ours, that is all the difference. So true detective fans were right to look for clues in the first four stories of the collection. These stories are set both in uh, the old world in Europe, so two of the first four stories, which are horror stories, and uh, two of them are set in an imagined future 1920 America. So this is written in 1895, and it's kind of science fiction-y in the sense that it's set in the future as well. And they all refer to the king in yellow. That's what t- ties them together. And the king in yellow is a fictional play within the settings of the stories. And it, the play reads as a kind of regular uh, kind of play in the first act, and it sends you insane in the second. So I don't know if anybody here has read David Foster Wallace's Infinite Jest. There's this thing called the entertainment in that, which is a film that if anybody watches it, they just go catatonic and they end up dying because they're so entertained that they can't (laughs) look away from it. And it's going to be used as a terrorist weapon in that really long novel. Anyway, a bit of a uh, digression there. That's the English stuff coming (laughs) out. So images of a yellow king, masks, and uh, the mythical Carcosa. A dark, scary place taken up and expanded by a later admirer of, of Chambers that some of you might know, H.P. Lovecraft. He really authentically looks yeah. scary.
2: That's a mugshot, right? He was a bad
4: dude <laughs> as well. Look at his Yeah, he's... He was super racist. Yeah.
5: <laughs> Did you know that?
2: No. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He was like... He wasn't big on Jews or yeah, blacks no. or really just anyone yeah, that
5: wasn't no. like... Oh. Yeah, What about black women or Jewish women?
3: Wow. They're Sounds like worse. you could double down. From yeah.
5: <laughs> so uh, these images are the Yellow King, the masks, uh, and the carco. So these dot the cases of uh, true detectives murdered women and children. So I that's something maybe interesting to talk about. That it's always talked about the women, but it's actually lots of children that are, are murdered in this. Both uh, boys and girls mm-hmm. uh, are sort of objects of the violence, and I wonder how that inflects um, the feminist reading mm-hmm. of of the show. So these bodies are left in meaningfully postured repose, and the heads, at least in the first case that we see, uh, her head is adorned with a crown of antlers. So, uh, Lovecraft uses Carcosa in some of his work. So, there's this thing called the Cthulhu universe that uh, Lovecraft came up with. What it's a universe, kind of sorry? Cthulhu. I think
2: hear you say that for <laughs> Cthulhu. <laughs> Cthulhu.
5: <laughs> yeah, it's spelled C-T-H-U-L-U. So, it's a really made up word. Yeah. And uh, he, he just kind of steals Carcosa and puts it in a planet in outer space. So one might argue that The King in Yellow merely provides a kind of ready-made mythos or, you know, repertoire of images for uh, writer Nick Pizzolato and director Kerry Fukunaga and a bunch of freaky images from which the series can draw. Uh, this is a quote. Maybe when True Detective ends, I'll catch the de- connection. But as of now, this book didn't do a darn thing for me, True Detective or not. So said Silver Cloud, who is a reviewer on Amazon.
3: A <laughs> <The> reviewer. Yep. <laughs>
5: Didn't do a darn thing. <laughs> so the show ends last year. As we know, Russ Cole fearlessly slash stupidly ventured into the killer's version of Carcosa. I mean, you could have waited for the Calvary, right? You no. said, come into here. You're all right. He's no. a lone man. He is. He's. That's exactly right. Mm. Cause I say that's right because I'm going to say that in a little bit. <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so he ventures into the killer's version of Carcosa, finds a yellow king, gets stabbed in the process, but ultimately kills the killer. So now we can make some connections, uh, some banal, others less so, between the Chambers uh, stories uh, in the King in Yellow collection and True Detective. So in The Repair of Reputations, uh, Mr. Wilde, who's in that, he too carries a ledger, like Rust, the taxman Cole. <laughs> we have the confusion between dream and reality in Chambers, the yellow sign, appearing when Rust has a vision of the universe before his dad when he looks up which is the worst moment to have a vision of the universe when there is a guy in the room who wants to stab you. Uh, And his confession here, he says, "Uh, I I don't sleep, I just dream. And then there's also that uh, character that he goes and visits in New Orleans for a little bit, uh, Johnny Joanie, who just decides it's all going to be a dream because it was so traumatic and they all had animal faces so it had to be a dream. And Rust, nice guy at a party, says, I don't think that was a dream Mm -hmm. to him. And uh, Errol Childress, the serial killer, sorry to ruin who it is. <laughs> Spoilers. But, uh, I'll check in with
2: her after this night. Yeah, just like, yeah. what have you made of this show? His what name do you think won't help. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway.
5: Well, when he <coughs> stabs uh, Rust, he says, take off your mask. And he stabs him in the stomach, which is an odd thing to say, seeing as Rust was not wearing a mask at the time. <laughs> And this is a trope that's throughout all of uh, the, the King in Yellow in the, stor- in the uh, fictional stories, so the play within the stories. And then they have, it's sort of dotted with excerpts from this play that will send you insane. You, sir, should a mask, indeed. Indeed, it's time. We have all laid aside disguise but you. I wear no mask. No mask? No mask. Cue insanity. So as Twin Peaks... <laughs> One of true detective's progenitors has taught us there is more to the answer of the question, who killed, insert woman's name, than its simple answer. The killer obviously killed them. Who killed Laura Palmer? Who killed Dora Kelly Lang? Who engages? Why lingers? Mark Seltzer captures this grisly fascination of what he calls wound culture in the first pages of a very interesting book he wrote called Serial Killers, Death and Life in America's Wound Culture. I guess I have to read this because this has been recorded for a podcast. (laughs) Serial killing has its place in a public culture in which addictive violence has become not merely a collective spectacle but one of the crucial sites where private desire and public fantasy cross. So this is not only the uh, detectives uh, standing around looking at pictures of murdered and desecrated women. It's also you as an audience watching that. So this is the kind of the private desire and public fantasy intersecting, and it's the way in which the state and the individual interact in the United States. It's often when, you know, America has this very kind of individualistic notion of the citizen, you know, the government, deliver the mail, protect the borders, and we'll call you when we need you, is a kind of American attitude to government. But when they do intersect, it's often around the family, and particularly uh, around women. So issues such as uh, reproductive rights, marriage, nutrition, this is when the government actually uh, has sort of... uh, some uh, intervention with the individual in the United States and the police are a kind of mechanism for that. So the convening of the public around scenes of violence, the rushing to the scene of the accident, the milling around the point of impact, So you know, sort of looking at the wounds and, and you see Rust is always kind of staring at, at the bodies, whereas Marty, he gets a sense of it and looks away. And there's interesting in which, but Marty is kind of triggered by that, he has to do something once he sees that. One time he looks away completely after, you know, he sees a baby exploded in a microwave. It's kind of the worst thing. That image. And yeah. they, he's, like, he's like, no more. I'm, I'm out. And then Russ brings him back in by showing him a child being murdered on a, on a video.
2: So fun, that Russ. Yeah. Yeah.
5: Come <laughs> have a party with me. Don't
2: give up yet.
5: I've got a... Can you imagine... You know, look at this YouTube clip. Yeah, yeah. Look <laughs> at this video that I've got. So uh, this is what Mark Seltzer calls a wound culture. And so he says, the public fascination with torn and open bodies and torn and open persons, he says, is a collective gathering around shock, trauma and the wound. And this, um, particularly in detective fiction and crime um, television, is uh, usually a woman's body and kind of more spectacularly, in a pejorative sense, uh, a child's body. What Chambers' book reveals, both in its utility for the makers of True Detective and its context of production, is how the American South, especially Louisiana, maps onto the Gothic horror of Europe, and how the South is a site that Americans and consumers of American culture like to go to experience wound culture. Now, Louisiana has the fourth highest rate of film and television production, which is behind California, New York, and Georgia. So in addition to generous tax incentives, the state provides a ready-made repertoire of fantasy, magic, and evil contained in the earth. So HBO's Vampires Are Real and They Are Among Us hit show True Blood is also set in Louisiana. And along with David Simon's New Orleans verite drama Treme, it would appear that HBO thinks the truth is down there in the Bayou State, or as it calls itself now, Hollywood South. The publication of The King in Yellow coincides with the early work of Sigmund Freud and his so-called discovery of the unconscious. This is another continuity between Europe and America, what we now call profiling. Her body is a paraphilic love map, says Rust of Dora Kelly Lang's corpse, which he explains as an attachment of physical lust to (coughs) fantasies and practices forbidden by society. This is textbook Freud that uh, Rust is... uh, Educating Marty about, <laughs> and therefore the audience, right? That's so is
4: kind of the dime store Freud. Yeah, yeah. That
5: there? And he's a lot more <laughs> nihilistic than <Yeah>. Freud, though. <laughs> the King in Yellow provides image and structure to Errol Childress's psychopathology. So, Errol Childress is the uh, serial killer, just as William Blake's watercolours do for Francis Dollar Hyde in the supreme example of serial killer uh, fiction, uh, Thomas Harris's Red Dragon, which is a fantastic book and uh, the movie has this very memorable scene when Ray Fine is playing the killer and he actually tries to eat one of the paintings, he, he does eat one of the paintings in order to try and control his own psychopathology which is kind of structured by these images. So as I said, Russ spouts an anti-natalist philosophy which is found in the work of Nietzsche. I think this is the only show ever where in the middle of a gunfight you'll hear Nietzsche's name said. <laughs> so there's this gunfight going on and one of the guys says, time is a flat circle or something. He's like, what is that, Nietzsche? <laughs> Shut the fuck up.
3: <laughs> which someone needed to
5: say to, uh, to Rust all along. <laughs> So this mine is a philosophy does. was also taken up... my does <laughs> yeah, all the time, that's does. for the fun, yeah. shut the fuck up all the time. Uh, this Nietzschean so anti-natalism was taken up by H.B. Lovecraft, mm. and in some of Chambers' stories, we have uh, these uh, things called lethal chambers, so he's kind of nodding at himself cutely there, which are uh, legally sanctioned euthanasia centres. So when uh, the government has seen fit to acknowledge, this comes from one of the stories, the right of man to end an existence which may have become intolerable to him through physical suffering or mental despair. So it's a legal euthanasia. Anti-natalism essentially believes that birth is bad. One of its early proponents was the 19th century German philosopher, and if if children are brought into the world by an act of pure reason alone, would the human race continue to exist? Would not a man rather have so much sympathy with the coming generation as to spare it the burden of existence, or at any rate, not take it upon himself to impose that burden upon it in cold blood? This is Rust, right? If you imagine that with the Texan <laughs> accent. And it's called Studies in Pessimism, which uh, we saw Rust define himself as a pessimist. So, Rust's special knowledge is one of the show's main attractions, I think, along with McGonaghy's attractiveness and the way that this is ravaged between the show's multiple timelines. He even brings with him from his birthplace of Alaska a kind of Catholic cold. So this place of Cthulhu is this kind of cold, arctic space that has these forces that are beyond our reckoning, but they're kind of evil and we don't ever get to know them, but we know that they're bad. And so that's his kind of childhood in uh, Alaska there. So even if these secrets and visions are caused by flashbacks from working as an undercover drugs officer or feeling the presence of his dead child after making it out of Errol Childress's Carcosa alive, The series becomes less beholden to the source material, The the Chamber's uh, King in Yellow, when its detectives become true. In the last two episodes, which which are set in the present, Marty and Rust become true detectives when they are no longer agents of the state. Indeed, the police suspect Rust might be the killer. Marty early administered a kind of frontier justice by executing one of the serial killers in the show's uh, earliest timeline. 17 years later, Rust and Marty go it alone like the classical avenging cowboy of a Western, vigilantes, against the backdrop of the exotic authenticity of Louisiana's swamps, marshes, and its lurid, poor, and perverse. So you think about all the different kinds of people that they encounter. We have a woman who's sort of, hands are all burnt from the uh, dry cleaning that she's been doing. We have a castrated guy praising Jesus, and he's the one that appears in the uh, credits with his hair kind of flat down like that. And then there's the, the help uh, who uh, says, you know Carcosa as well, and she sort of gives uh, a clue into the kind of incestuous sprawl as Rust describes it in the South. So it's as if, you know, there's child abuse, there's underage brothels, satanic Christianity. So this is all, you know, kind of the wound culture manifested as a television show. So instead of the cunning, child-stealing Indian, such as Chief Scar in John Ford's uh, classic Western Searches, and the simultaneously romanticised and demonised mythography of Native Americans, True Detectives, in what I would call a new Southern Western, has Errol Childress mimic a British accent and enacts Chambers' European Gothic. So he, he is this kind of creepy southerner when he has come across when he, people don't know that he's the killer. But as soon as we know he's the killer, he affects this English accent, which he's getting from Cary Grant. And he talks about having a constitutional. So you sort of see he's not this down-home, backwards, southern figure, someone who can impersonate different kinds of people and take on their kind of social universes, is evincing a kind of uh, autodidactic intelligence that you would not initially ascribe to him just kind of standing there painting a shed. (laughs) And so Rust in turns, becomes the relentless and obsessive Ethan Edwards, who's the John Wayne figure in The Searches. So what happens in The Searches is that uh, a child is kidnapped by Indians and Ethan Edwards, the John Wayne character, will not stop. It takes him, like five to seven years to find the girl. She, there's a bit of a problem because she doesn't want to go back with him, but uh, <coughs> then he goes to kill her. That's a problem. But then there's a fight, <laughs> and he kills Scar, which I want to say is sort of a version of the spaghetti monster. And then she goes, okay, and he gets up, she gets up on the horse, and they drive right off into the... <laughs> drive off on a horse. My English <laughs> is good. <laughs> So like him, uh, the John Wayne character of that, he fought in the Confederacy, so he's another ex-agent of the state, and Rust, as this kind of southern cowboy, Louisiana, Texas, um, playing together there, he's unafraid to enter the Carcosa of Louisiana in Hollywood South. That's me.
2: Thank you very much, Rodney. Now, are there any kind of, with your knowledge of, of, I guess, American literature and stuff like that and pop culture, any kind of... Unintentional parallels that you can draw with other things, as in things that Nick Pazolotto might not have intended, but you can kind of go, "Oh, I recognise that theme in in certainly these other texts." Well,
5: this notion of, of a Southern Gothic—he he is from this area that he's he's writing about. Like Iraq, and he had a
2: and he had a really like rough
5: childhood. Yeah, you won't go back. Christian
2: upbringing as yeah, well.
5: Violence was an everyday part of his life. Mm. So he's got this kind of uh, authentic experience of what is framed as authentic, but so it's something about going to the South, you are sort of going into America's unconscious, mm. and that un- the unconscious is a really scary space. Mm. Why do you think it is
2: America's unconscious?
5: Uh, be- one, because it has America's great stain of slavery mm. playing out mm. there, and uh, it has, the South has a very interesting colonial and racial history as well, so it's not just that slavery sort of was fought for in, I mean a lot of other reasons why the Civil War happened, but. Uh, you know, the reason is the South wanted slaves and the North didn't, it's like, well, it's it's, is it's the ball sort of um, uh, account of that. But there's also, I mean, it's mentioned in the show that Lake Charles was a pirate hideout. There's this voodoo stuff that's playing in there. So if you think about the South as kind of the North Caribbean, mm. I think would be an interesting way to think about how uh, America gets these other kinds of influences. And the notion of, a, of the Gothic, I mean, you talked about Mardi and rust being two sides of the same kind. the double and the mm. doppelganger is this kind of figure that's coming through through all the gothic mm. fiction which has to do with you know Frankenstein's monster is a kind of doppelganger of a human and that's what makes it scary and all the doubleness that's happening here it's kind of happening with Marty and uh well you see it with Rust better is that he was once this beautiful man and then he's this old drunk right and the way that the show flips between the two it's like he is, he He's a half, but he's also become split by what he's gone through because of the bad shit that he encountered down in the south. Yeah.
4: And it's kind of also like about the other as well. I'm yeah. thinking that, that it's interesting that the um, Pizzolatto is from that place because it, it's a show that is really infused with trauma, and it really yeah. has um, it really has a, an authenticity about it. But it also is a show that is pretty um, that fetishizes, you know, um, dysfunction a show that kind of really makes a lot of, you know, narrative hay out of people's, dis, you know, dysfunction and misfortune. Yeah. And it's really hard on poverty. It's really hard yeah. on race. It's really hard. So it's as a, a p- class and a race and a gender analysis, it doesn't come up looking great.
5: No, it's almost kind of pornographic in yeah. its gaze on really these back. Water characters, yeah. so everyone they encounter they sort of go, then something bad's going to happen. Everyone's
4: like, you know, physically deformed or just deliverance vibes. Yeah,
5: yeah. I mean, yeah. that's what it you're is. kind of waiting to hear yeah. in the
4: background
2: a lot of the
5: time. And
4: That's why I think America. That's why I think America kind of does fetishize the South yeah. as the repository of the of dysfunction and, and of what's wrong. Yeah, and
5: because and it, it can because it can always go, you guys. Well, you're slavery. just down there. Yeah. yeah, you guys have a really bad racial history. So,
2: and how do you think that that view then that. The rest of America has on the South affects the Southern mentality. Then,
5: well, I think it makes it it reinforces it in a sense, right? So mm-hmm. it becomes kind of insular because it has mm-hmm. to defend itself, in mm-hmm. a sense, against these kind of you know imaginary projections onto it.
2: And do you think it keeps? It's traditions, but it keeps them hidden. And in this case, I guess we've got got the traditions of, I guess, the children's family.
5: But we also have
2: those things of, like, secretly supporting slavery or secretly feeling this way about black people, that idea that you can have these dark feelings and emotions and traditions that you wish to preserve because they're history, yeah. but it's, everything's behind, it's hidden,
5: and it has yeah. southern
2: hospitality on the front, and it's yeah. Very a lot of darkness underneath? Yeah. And or is that just a cliche that it, I can it, just make up? It's a cliche,
5: up? but it's also, if you trace family trees in the South, they'll both be all slaves and slave owners, right? Oh. There'll be a mix of people taking part in... You know, America was the last place on Earth essentially to... Stop slavery. Mm. The Atlantic slave trade ended in 1808 and it was until the 1860s that Lincoln had to go and shoot at his own people to stop them from owning other people and that's not that long ago and one of the, the things that connects um, the present to that is that in the 1860s photography was used a lot at this time so you had photos of the Civil War and you had photos of, of slaves And in earlier manifestations of slavery, you don't have those immediate images.
2: And you kind of also have it when you get into the 20th century and you're starting to see photos and those souvenirs of the Ku Klux Klan and, again, yeah. that kind of really southern darkness mm. as yeah. well, which, uh, although there's there's not really any clan stuff that happens in this, uh, it's, there's something about southern trees that just, like... Yeah. Get, no, like, it's not... It's strange fruit. Yeah, strange fruit, but, it, honestly, it gives me, like, a little bit of a chill because I just uh, associate that imagery mm. with a lot of darkness as well, I guess.
5: And they totally t- play on that. That's yeah. why it provides a set of images that everyone knows what they mean as soon as they see them. Mm-hmm. It means scary, mm-hmm. and so if you set it in Louisiana... It means danger. Yep, mm. and that's why, you know, hey, there could be vampires there as well. Mm. So
2: this <laughs> couldn't be set anywhere else in America, do you not, think?
5: Not in this mode, but this, do, this doesn't make sense in, in, in the same way in other parts of America. You couldn't make this sh- uh, have, You couldn't have this kind of gothic horror in California. Mm. It, wouldn't be, it wouldn't be the same thing at all. Oh, there's awesome. something about the, the South being really old, like, we've been here for a long time, says Errol Childress. And the big, wanky word I'll say today is it's autochthonous. So autochthonous means it, it's sort of native to the ground itself. As I'm going to
2: Google that and check that out, because that doesn't <laughs> sound like a real word. No, I'm sure it that, yeah,
5: it's used in, like, agriculture, so it's sort of, you know, native to the space. Indigenous. The space produces it. Yeah, still... So,
0: Oh Do you? That's my prediction in wow. the second season. Yeah. Well, this That's great. the west no, of, of Christianity as well. It would be more interesting if it happened. Like yeah. If, if something was brought out of the south and infiltrated into the second series. There was that
4: migration, the that huge wave of migration from the south to, during the depression.
0: Hmm. Maybe.
2: Yeah. <laughs> great. Um, does anyone in the audience have anything they want to say or ask? So well behaved, I love that <laughs> Oh, oh! You had to be a hero, didn't you? No, you're absolutely welcome to ask. Um, for the podcast, because I don't think we have the mics ready. If it's short, oh, you do get the mic up there. I was gonna have to repeat it, but get the mic up there so the people at home can listen. Just at the back row. I can tell she's feeling mic pressure now, but don't. Anyone can have a mic.
0: Hi. Uh, my question is, when you were saying that you don't think that there's anywhere else in the US that this, this, type, of, um, mm-hmm. this type of narrative could take place, um, my question to you is, what about Alaska? It has the mm. same That's sort good- of history mm-hmm. and it has that yeah. same sort of really, you know, in, the, in that frigid cold, in that same otherness. Well,
5: the, the, the thing that wouldn't be there is the sensuality of the South. It's just too cold. It's frigid. Up there, mm. whereas the South people—they at clothes off all the time. You know, when <laughs> Errol children just walks out, he's, he, he's bare chested. And there's something about the relations of bodies to each other that yeah. I just don't think the same thing would happen in Alaska. But yeah, I think they, you could could do a Gothic
0: northern Gothic of, yeah. instead of southern Gothic. Yeah, because you have yeah. fortitude, and you get that feeling of separateness and cold. And yeah, I think the idea that the the bodies are coming together and merging and decaying and living on top of one another and being part of the land is something that, well they tried to do it I think in Fortitude but for me it didn't quite work. Mm
4: -hmm. And that the rest of the country feels contempt for you, you know the rest of the country feels as though you're separate and backward and as though you have this set of traditions that is not quite American. And I mean, Hawaii battles with that as well. There are different parts of America that are kind of um, excised culturally.
0: But America is fascinating, isn't it? Because each state is just so different. You could almost be in a different country. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. you kind of are, really.
5: And I'd like to think of themselves as different countries,
2: particularly Texas. Yes, yeah. Uh, Anyone else have a question? Great, don't be afraid. I'm only making fun when I sort of say don't do it. (laughs) I actually really want them. (laughs)
3: <laughs> Hi.
0: Right. This one. Oh yes.
4: Um you mentioned that it couldn't be set anywhere else. Yeah. But
5: um <laughs> no. what have I said? No no, I just yeah. want your
4: opinion on whether you this think there will me. still be literary comparisons abled for um next season set in LA. And yeah. do you think it's possible for them to continue that?
5: Yeah, uh, it gets drawn draw on the uh, California mm. tradition of, of literature. What, what era would that
2: be from? Like, you talking, I, I keep 40s. sort of envisioning like 30s, 40s kind For of... For
5: California yeah. literature? Yeah, I mean, you have the early boosterism, which is getting people to try and come to California early on, and that's a kind of lot of hucksterism going on there and a lot of lies, and I think the Vince Vaughan character is meant <laughs> to be an entrepreneur criminal type, so, I mean, total conjecture here, but, you know, just making stuff up in order to get someone to believe something, so they give you money is kind of what they used to do to get people to come out to California initially. I mean, Steinbeck, even though know, the Grapes of Roth, mm-hmm. they'll pass out all these leaflets. Everything's just come, get out of Oklahoma, come to California, you can pick heaps of oranges. And it turns out to be not the case. Everything's idyllic here. Yeah, yeah. everything's better here. Yeah, and that kind of westward, the idea of the westward movement in the United States is a really important one. So the South has been there forever, but the West is new.
2: What kind of what kind of um, books or literature I'm assuming you just want to get straight on to Amazon and start buying so we can be your all, <laughs> all okay with with the, with those kind of tropes but uh,
5: well it dep- I mean so I don't think it's actually set in Los Angeles the next one it's specifically not yeah Los it's, Angeles. it's
4: California but not LA so the- they've actually they've already mm. spoken about how it needs to be kind of weird California, yeah. the parts of California that have been very little narrativised yeah. and very little. Sound. Yeah.
5: And that yeah. stuff, this is where a tunnel could pop up because a lot of <laughs> Christian I'm, revi- I'm waiting for <laughs> A lot of Christian revivalism happens in uh, California. Yeah. You know, yeah. pro- uh, uh, what's the religion where you speak in tongues? Pentecostal. Yeah. That was founded mm. in California. Right. So it began there in 1996. it'll be
3: That'd Scientology.
5: Yeah, there's Scientology. All these kind <laughs> oh. of religions.
2: <laughs> the production would have been shut down by now. <laughs> and we all have to leave this room now. Yeah. I've just got word from Scientology. We're being sued. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, look, if you have any other <laughs> further questions for Rodney, and one great question you might want to stew on is, what if they said it here? Um, which I think we've, we've done a little bit. But, um, yeah. Yeah. We'll get to you a little bit later hopefully again, Rodney and Karen, but our final uh, our final guest tonight is Dr. Terry Waddell. She's an Associate Professor in Screen Arts at La Trobe University and she lectures and researches on the relationship between screen media, literature, gender, popular culture and psychology. She's authored plenty of things like Wild <laughs> slash Lives, Trickster, Place and Liminality on Screen. Um, Ooh, we've got lots of slashes in them. Miss Slash Takes. Yes. I'm enjoying these. Yes. Archetype, Myth and Identity in Screen Fiction. And you co-edited, co-edited Lounge Critic, The Couch Theorist's Companion. Um, and you recently released Eavesdropping, The Psychotherapist in Film and Television. And uh, your chapter, traditional fan- no, sorry, Transitional Fantasies of Masculinity, is going to be released uh, at the end of next month. In The Happiness Myth, How the Media Sold Us a Fairy Tale. Uh, you're very accomplished and I believe that you're going to be talking to us and I'm pretty excited about this as well. <laughs> I hope I don't get it wrong. But how spirituality and religion yes. feature in True Detective. And again, if, if like we had lots of literature references peddled throughout this but also huge arguments that were being had about what exactly True Detective was trying to say about religion, you know, Rust, Rust is a nihilist, um, yes. there's certainly some very passionate
0: religious people in here.
2: Take it away, Dr. We do He else? does
0: see the light, I think, <laughs> at the end. We were just putting this image up and I didn't see, can you see the face behind the child, the angel there? When I was putting that clip together, I just didn't see that. It was really quite interesting. Uh, we've had Schopenhauer, we've had Nietzsche, we've had Freud, so I'm going to talk a bit about Jung to get into the sort of spirituality of it. And I say that um, conservatively, because I think like it's a, a pot of, did anyone notice how many crosses were in that scene? No. Mm-hmm.
2: Play it again, I can see through <laughs> all. you have
0: to go home and do it now. So as soon as he asks about Russ meditating to a crucifix above his bed, we start to see the telephone poles, the telegraph poles in the background and they flash by on either side and they are relentless as they're coming outside the car. But when I was looking at it what I thought is they're not just crosses, they're torture implements, they're crucifix in the sense of men being crucified because the, they stand up, you're looking at them from a lower to an upper point of view along the road and they're just relentless so immediately you're brought into this idea of sort of relentless religious torture and that's exactly what we see um through through the series so i thought that was very interesting to show because in the first two times i'd I'd seen the series i that didn't occur to me and this is what's great watching it that um a third time um, for sort of closer textual analysis you start to see all these things Uh, The other thing we see a lot of in the series is this spiral pattern called the carcosa. But spirals have a lot of uh, sort of cultural significance and they go back to Neolithic Europe as sort of sacred signs of death and rebirth and the idea of the circle too on churches and, you know, religious architecture and also on the land is about going into the womb and then working one's way out of the womb again, we um, see a lot of spiral labyrinths. And at the end of the film, I was thinking, no, they couldn't be that cliched to make <laughs> to make Childress's little little uh, chamber of horrors a spiral, and it, it wasn't. But but there certainly are a, a spiral labyrinths. And you also then I think about the intertextual reference here to Ariadne and the Minotaur and the idea at the end of Rust and Marty being caught with the Minotaur with no way out in, in the maze. The, maze. Yeah. the idea here too is that if we get back to Jung, and I'll play you another clip which immediately made me leap to him. Jung, uh, if you've seen Michael Vassbender playing Jung, uh, you might, it's in Dangerous Method, if you're not familiar, he was a contemporary of Freud's. So they came together with Freud's 1906 um, book on dreams. Uh, Freud, uh, Jung decided he really was interested in what Freud was writing, interpretation of dreams. They met, they developed a friendship, and they busted up in a very explosive way in 1913. That's another story. But one of the interesting things is that if we talk about this idea of a spiral as a sign, I don't want to give any kind of media 101 lecture, but signs are often things we know about. Mm-hmm. So semiotics which is the language of signs and we see symbols within that so for example if we look at a dove which is a symbol we know that it is peace we we culturally learn that Jung had a very different idea because he was a psychologist of and psychiatrist of what symbols were and he said they weren't things we know about so they weren't culturally known He said they were things we half understand, things that are very unconscious in us, that have deep resonance and we need to unravel and mine what these things mean. I thought this was very interesting in terms of the spiral in that we're constantly trying to understand and grapple with what this is throughout the series. What it means also to different characters because Jung's argument too is that it will mean different things to different people, even if the sign is, uh, the shape is similar. So when Rust sees, well, fantasizes, or has a vision of the birds forming a spiral in the sky, uh, to me it was very resonant of the unconscious coming up and trying to tell him something. Because you know, often if we look at the sky and we see a shape in it and our friend doesn't see anything in it, it says a lot about us, and it's probably worth thinking about why we see a particular image like that. So what clued me into Jung a bit is in the next clip, which I'll play, which is a bit grisly. I'll warn you, it's a a lot of wound and trauma. So if you could hear that over there, southern mumbling, uh, (laughs) I I had to put on the subtitles when I was watching this so often. You can see that uh, Rust actually said, if this is his, it's an archetype. And it's one of the first times I've heard the word archetype used in the way that Jung intended it to be used, which I went, so, uh, you know, Pizzolatto and I'm sure Rust would have been esoteric enough to have tapped into Jung sometime in their life. So it made sense to me. So this is from Psychological Types. uh, That's Collected Work 6, paragraph 81, in case you want to look it up. And, And Jung says, every psychological expression is a symbol if we assume that it states or signifies something more and other than itself, which eludes our present knowledge. So we don't quite know what it is. It's on the surface. It's appearing to us. It's resonant to us. But it's still unconscious. And we have to find this out. So it's archetypal. He talks about it being archetypal. And spiral is very similar to mandala shapes you may have seen. Tibetan Buddhist mandala shapes and the sand um, mandalas that are created by um, Tibetan monks and then they're washed away. Again, the sand is shifted and, and they're recreated and it's symbolising very simply the transitory nature of our material life um, and you might think about that in terms of the end of uh, a true detective. So, there's an archetypal quality to it, so archetypes aren't quite instincts and I'll just be really brief here but they're sort of like psychological patterns that uh, Jung was very optimistic that can help us address things in our life if something's wrong can help heal us in the way that uh, instincts help us physically survive so this idea of the spiral in the way it was drawn on the um, scapula of the victims and on the perpetrators as well signifies this idea of death and renewal So it can say something in the the idea of a cultural sign, but there's still underneath, we don't really quite know what that means. The idea of transcendence plays itself out through this, but we really don't know what that means yet. Um, Marty hasn't got a clue what that means, but Rust is sort of hooking into it. And when you were talking about the doubling of the two detectives, what I see is a doubling of Rust and Childress, the psychopath at the end. So here there's like a swirling vortex that Rust is looking up before he's about to be stabbed, in which he thinks, I should be dead. Uh, and it's very similar to the spiral here. If you want to, uh, I've just got Luke Hockley's book here, Any of, anyone who's a cinema or media student, Somatic Cinema, The Relationship Between the Body and the Screen. Luke talks very much, and he's got wonderful... Um, play on Jung's theory about symbols and how audiences react to what they see on the screen and, and how symbols arise for them and how they play with the image in that. I, I won't go into explaining that but it's, it's terrific and I thoroughly recommend it and it's in the State Library, I believe, if you want to have a look at it. Um, so here's the clip from the beginning, the cross and again culturally it can be a number of things, a torture implement as I said in the beginning. I think in this series we don't quite know what the cross means. We associate it with religion, but it's so potent. It's phallic, it's a torture implement. Jung saw it as an idea of wholeness, a sort of quaternity, the idea of sacrifice, the idea of redemption, the idea of love. So we have these things floating around and still it's an unknown. So this is another uh, quote of Jung's where he does talk about the cross The interpretation of the cross as a symbol of divine love is semiotic, the language of science. On the other hand, an interpretation of the cross is symbolic when it puts the cross beyond all conceivable explanations, regarding it as expressing an as yet unknown and incomprehensible fact of a mystical or transcendent psychological nature, which simply finds itself most appropriately represented in the cross. You can chew on that. There there again we see Rust with the cross and it's interesting, he's called the Little Priest by Errol at the end. So there is something quite uh, monastic in a way about about Rust. Mm. This is the, the same image that Rodney brought up here and you talked about the Yellow King. When I saw it I immediately thought of the Green Man image, which is sort of like a Celtic tree or wood figure and you often see it in pillars of um, churches in Europe. And perhaps the most well known is the Roslyn Chapel, which featured in that Hollywood classic, The Da Vinci Code. But it's. He answered
2: p- a lot of questions about religion, <laughs> Dan Brown, to be fair.
0: <laughs> but you have to go to this chapel. I mean, it, if anyone is in Edinburgh, it's just out, take a trip. I'm not religious, but. Could have turned me. This this chapel is absolutely beautiful, but there are green men all over it. It's absolutely extraordinary. Uh, and this is another image of the green man in Trafalgar Square, and they sort of uh, they bring in these allusions, and, and they don't take them much further. So I really think this was just an allusion to something that they saw. oh, that looks interesting. Let's throw that in. So this the cross and the, the spiral were all sort of unknowable symbols, you know, unconscious that we needed to raise and understand. Similarly, I think the idea of the child is a symbol in this series as well. We don't quite know what it represents, we don't quite know what it means to each of the characters, but we know that it means something uh, extremely uh, visceral. It's interesting when the women are represented, particularly the sexualised women, that they, who are connected to the cult, are linked with toys. So you see the prostitute here that uh, Rust questions. Beth, who was the young girl that Marty tried to convince to leave the brothel, and then he proceeded to have sex with her uh, when she was older. In her flat, you see toys all around as well. The daughter, Audrey, is very interesting. Um, one thing about Rust and Marty is they don 't seem to like um, women with a lot of sexual agency it 's almost as Marty cannot stand his daughter being so sexualized um, and then of course, the children 's house, which is just revolting what 's interesting, and i didn 't come to this conclusion I found it on the net um, when I was looking at images but when there's rust here and you see the wall, if I had a pointer, you can see that there is the spiral on the wall. There are shapes on the wall that are very mandala-like. And the daughter, um, in, when it first starts in 1995, is uh, quite interested in sex and plays it out in her has drawings and um, has this kind of interaction with her, her students, fellow students. And she makes a configuration of dolls, which is quite disturbing, really. it's um, If you can remember that image, it's one uh, naked woman uh, about to have uh, be penetrated by one man with a group of people watching. So is she connected to this cult is a really quite interesting question. Was the daughter connected to this as a child? So there's hint- hints of... Audrey's involvement. And her sexuality uh, is seen as aberrant. And I think it's because it's overt, because she displays sexual feelings as a girl, suddenly to Rust and Marty, that's aberrant. And when Marty um, has quite vigorous sex with Maggie, again, that's almost a punishment for a woman's sexual um, agency and I found that quite disturbing. It's interesting in episode two when you have the South Lake brothel and the madam of the brothel says, girls walk this earth all the time screwing for free. Why is it you add business into the mix and boys like you can't stand the thought? It's because suddenly you don't own it the way you thought you did. Now if we take this idea that all of these women who are overtly sexual are then connected to the sect because in Beth the young woman who, who Marty eventually has sex with I didn't bring the dialogue up but there are hints of some things she says that relate back to some things we hear people involved in the sex say so what that does is that totally undermines if there was any feminism in this madam's um, sort of proclamation here it's totally undermined by that idea because the women don't own it the men own it and they own them if they are in fact um, part of this sort of movement. Then Rust goes into the Queen of Angels uh, Chapel, the Tuttle School, and he sees this image of a child. Now what's interesting to me about this image is that it links up all the previous images that we've been talking about. You get the cross figure in the window, you get the round circle, the mandala kind of image there, you get the child plate on top of it. You get the light going into it. And, I mean, that's almost phallic. And so they're all interconnected, and yet we still don't know what all of them mean. But they can mean different things to different characters, which is quite interesting. So that, that's sort of something to muse on. Now, Russ being a real nihilist at the beginning mm-hmm. and thinking we're just driven by our physiology, and there's nothing spiritual about us at all, ends up being very Christ-like, and in the scene where he's in bed, there is, I, I thought I'd have too many clips, so I didn't put that one in the mix, but there is a scene where you see him in his hospital bed, and suddenly there's a bit of neon light at the back, and, and it's almost like he's, it's Easter, you know, <laughs> and he's coming up, and then the very last sentence is once there was only dark but if you ask me the light's winning. So I did try and get a biblical quote and there were hundreds to choose from. <laughs> hundreds and hundreds to choose from. So I just plucked out Matthew 4:16. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light and for those dwelling in the region of shadow and death on them a light has dawned. So it's almost as if Rust rises quite Christ-like and has seen the light and is, is um, a little more enlightened, excuse the pun, than he was at the beginning of the series, that there's hope, you know, we're going to go on, I'm going to, to, to walk into the light now, which is quite interesting. i Not got a clue what it means, really, but, This is what I think is fascinating about this, that religion is thrown in, um, spirituality is thrown in, and at the end, it's still quite unconscious. We still don't really know what it means, except from Eric Childress, who we know is going to be transcended in some way at the end. I think that's, if we're going to talk about what we think the spiral means, of what the mandala means, what the children mean to him, the children seem to be a vessel for his transcendence. And the circle that um, in the universe that Russ sees above him is a kind of transcendent symbol as well. And then you might even say that, that Russ has risen at the end of the film, which is very transcendent. So it plays on all these things, and what we as audience can do is work it out and what it means to us individually. So the idea of finding exact meaning in a television show or a film is quite interesting, but what's more interesting is what the individual audience member uh, brings to their screen experience and their life experience on everything they're seeing and associating and intertextually reading into this. And it was very interesting too when you were talking about the crucifix and the South and the Ku Klux Klan that out of Matthew McConaughey in his earlier film, one of the ones where he doesn't rip his shirt off, (laughs) a, a time to kill. So you see that very clearly too. So that's what I have to say.
2: Well, I want to ask you a couple of things about what you mentioned. So uh, based on a clip actually, like I'm getting a real link from what you've put together, the clip where that you played where Rust and Marty are talking in the car and Marty asks about the cross and he says that he wears it as a meditation thing to think about that moment when Christ's in Gethsemane, Garden of Gethsemane, I think, and, and, and he thinks about that moment that he decides that he's willing to crucify himself for the others, and if that's the same moment that Rust would have when he decides that he's going to face Childress alone rather than wait mm-hmm. for anyone else, and mm-hmm. he deliberately makes that decision to go in there and to then crucify himself. Therefore, this whole post-stabbing Christ-like imagery, I mean, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's almost clumsy. Yeah. You it's know, very I think odd.
0: It's, it's, it's just... It surprised me because it was so clichéd, and its it did seem a very, very clumsy... Um, It's like saying good versus evil, and and good will win out. I mean, I think that's
2: directly from Tony Abbott's recent speeches. (laughs) So,
0: I'm not saying anything. (laughs) So, I mean, yes, I do think it's clumsy, but I think that sequence in the beginning is really fascinating because you're absolutely right. I think it signifies nearly everything that's to come later on. He is going to make a sacrifice. Um, and he, and through it, he is going to find a kind of redemption, mm-hmm. I think. And the, the thing he says before he thinks he's going to die or he should die is his daughter's name, Chloe. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the other thing that I'm thinking... And, and, I,
2: and I'm just going to play devil's advocate and ask all three of you. So, one thing that you said, you said, um, they bring in these illusions and they don't take them much further. And there's, I guess, one way that you can interpret it and say, like, isn't that you know, so smart to let you interpret the rest of yourself? Or are they literally just like copying and pasting all this high <laughs> class stuff and just chucking it in the script willy nilly <laughs> and then they don't even have to tie up any loose ends at the end except like yeah. just make him look like Jesus at the end and I'm sure it'll all piece itself together? Is that do, do you think they've executed their references, their many references to, to literature and to um, you know, psychiatry and all of that stuff? Do you think they've, they've actually used them well?
0: Well, I would say what you've just described is lost. <laughs> I, I think that was the most blatant use of undergraduate philosophy I've ever seen. You know, I didn't heard... we have a great time, you know, in first year philosophy? Let's just throw it all <laughs> into the series, and it, it really didn't mean anything. But they pitched
2: that show apparently not actually having it. they were like, and then there's this mystery: what's on the island? And then, and then the network, I think, thought like, brilliant! I can't wait to find out. And they were like. <laughs> Hope we can come up with something. I haven't actually watched Lost. That's my interpretation. I feel like we'll ask you about your interpretation of True Detective <laughs> a little bit
0: later. I um, did a whole chapter and I had to sit through all of it. I haven't um, seen it either. So it was interesting. But I think one of the things about True Detective, because Lost lost its audience toward the end, that, you know, we, Karen, you talked about us being gripped and um, wanting to find out what this was. True Detective
2: a lot shorter. Yeah.
4: Yeah, it, is lot,
0: it is a lot. Eight shorter? episodes,
2: and also you had to stay gripped with it because in this age of social media and stuff like that, like you if you, once spoiled. you get on that zeitgeist yeah. train, like <laughs> you have to ride it to the last station because otherwise people will spoil it all yeah. for you. And you want to know because you want yeah. to. It's almost part of the shows these days. The engagement level that you can have with each other about it's the great. show is yeah. almost just as 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 important as the strength oh, of the yeah. show itself.
0: Well, you could argue, and I don't think they I will thought argue. This, no, I don't know. <laughs> but, but you could say that, you know, throwing in these things leaves it very open for people to have those conversations mm. because I don't, I don't like anything that's wrapped up neatly at the end. I'd like, I like these things thrown in. Oh, this means no, but it might mean that, but it might mean this and it might mean...
2: I, I, like a Rorschach ch- 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 <laughs> uh, <laughs> test Look, it started kind of off, off just...
0: with Twin Peaks, I think, which sort of spawned... Still, people don't understand. Yeah,
3: yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> but
4: that, <British> I was <laughs> going to say the the um, the fact that True Detective seems to me like it does actually engage with a lot of its allusions and references in a really shallow way.
3: Yeah.
4: Um, doesn't really matter because it's enjoyable. Mm. And mm. as you're watching it, you you know. And when I saw the crucifixes, I thought of Scorsese. That to me oh, it's a Scorsese reference. Is that having crosses in films is about you know crossroads and about intersections and about you know, Catholicism and divides mm-hmm. between um, between different parts of you know families and whatever. And it's like, you know, I, I I enjoyed the show as this as because I watched it with a feminist lens, and I felt like, for instance, all the women characters really indicted Marty. I felt like every woman he came into contact with seemed better than him. <laughs> and, that wasn't hard. You and know. Abs- well, yeah, <laughs> and absolutely. Um, they highlighted his extreme hypocrisy, his extreme insecurity, his extreme brokenness as a person. Um, that that to, to get to the end of this and, and and find Marty like a really heroic or admirable character would be really difficult. I mean, I'm sure some people have done it. But um, I think, yeah, I, I think that cramming all those allusions and references in and, mm. and making it a kind of text that, is at once really popular, but also filled with these high-culture illusions is yes. really okay. Yes.
5: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what does a deep engagement with illusions look like? Mm. Mm. Anyway, I mean, mm. there As are... Ezra Pound's
4: poetry. Yeah, and which <laughs> is,
5: if there's one book that I'd burn, it would be <laughs> Ezra yeah. Pound's Cantos. Right?
4: Exactly. So, like, that idea that if you... In order to understand the illusions, and it's a thing that happens with pop culture a lot, often, you know, mm. you don't really understand it. You don't like it because you don't really understand it. Women get told this a lot too when they don't like things. Um, but it's we do have smaller brains. It's true. So it's um, hard, it's
2: harder to understand things. Yeah, and like
4: you that. keep getting periods. Yeah. yeah, it's really hard. But um but you you that idea of if if you understood all these illusions, you would actually be experiencing twenty different texts at yeah. once. Mm. Um and that the, Then you would go mad, like it, you had it,
2: read that play.
5: It yeah, would be it like clicking
4: on a hyperlink of every single word in an article. Yeah, you y- know what I mean? You y- wouldn't... Y-
5: hyperlink spirals. Exactly. You kind
4: of wouldn't be able to enjoy that one text, and I felt, I felt like this was kind of the veneer of, of high culture sophistication. Mm-hmm. But a veneer is sometimes enough.
0: It mm. mm. was, was interesting when I was um, going through the clips again yesterday, and I'm also doing a project on The Devil's Playground, so I was listening to the hearings on the web, uh, the streaming of the Royal commissions um, into institutional responses to child abuse A- as I was looking at this during the break, and i 'm thinking we have our own Gothic mm. here, and it 's almost more chilling than this, but it suddenly was very piercing for me looking at this this text that was so far away in another country you know and having this really happening in front of me Mm. and then looking at the religiosity of both of them playing out. I mean, that-
4: And the masculinity, again.
0: And the masculinity. what happens
4: between men, yeah.
0: And the denial Mm. and uh, the generations of it. Mm -hmm.
3: Mm.
0: And so all of those symbols kind of came to the fore um, Mm. to me watching this. And again, that's the experience of an individual viewer and what you what you bring to a text.
4: and you talked about the symbol of the child as well and i think that i mean that has its own resonance in australian mythology as well like the lost child but i'm thinking of children as fairly universally a symbol of innocence hmm. and of hope and of potential and so with the with the uh murderer in the end you have the sense of of his kind of arrested development as well that he was he was obviously inculcated into this sect in which he was abused mm and that he then kind of preys on children as this way of, uh, this way of, I don't know, you know that, that spiral or that, that kind of um, closing of circles or whatnot. But
0: there's also something about the lost child, which is another project yeah, I'm yeah, working on. Yeah. But they all lost children in themselves. I mean, we're talking earlier that, yeah. that Rust and Marty are like two 15-year-old boys, yes. you know. Rust is the one that's all uh, consciousness and angst and And stoned all the time you've met guys like that (laughs) and at when they're 15 and then Marty is all hormones you know and you've met that too and then you get Childress who's another example of another kind of child Mm. Um, so you get Mm. the child within men being undeveloped Mm -hmm. and unrealized and so that's uh, so again it becomes symbolic what does it mean
2: um, does anyone have any questions or anything they'd like to say to the panel as we kind of wind up this evening? Yeah. Yes, Gentleman in the back.
6: And um, Ross literally has lost time. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. One thing I was just wondering is, throughout all of the, um, your your research of True Detective, uh, there's such things that were were we'll discussed tonight, such as the uh, the the interpretation of it as an American Gothic and even the recurring images. Uh, Have any of you looked into the graphic novel influence on True Detective? Uh, To, to, I guess to highlight some examples, uh, Alan Moore's run on Swamp Thing, which was set in Louisiana, actually had a a run of a couple of issues titled American Gothic, which was looking at uh, his perception of some of the, the more negative aspects of American culture and Rust's interpretation of time being a flat disk where all all moments are happening simultaneously is a recurring trope in both the works of Alan Moore and Grant Morrison. I was wondering if any of you have um, come across that and if it's uh, something, I guess, a bit concurrent with the the other research you've come across.
5: Uh, I have come across those references, but I I don't know the works themselves, but I do know that Nick Pizzolatto has cited Alan Mm. Moore as a a kind of formative influence on... Uh, sort of combining it with the Lovecraftian view of the universe with these kind of dark impersonal forces and um, his I guess notion of um, kind of temporality or an experience of time being kind of flat and all happening at the same time like different things happening in one so that's sort of repeated in the three timelines of the show Mm -hmm. and and the the things that you mentioned where uh, you know the serial one of the serial killers says time is a flat disc and that relates to all the spirals again, mm. which I just I, I, I could see as a kind of graphic image of mm. time.
4: That teleological yep. process. And it, I read something similar that was about the, um, that Pizzolatto had cited Alan Moore as an influence and in that it's just that extremely visual show, you know, it, it's, it's, it's got a kind of, um, I mean, certainly cinematic, people have commented on that endlessly, but it has a kind of, um, there's a stillness to a lot of the visual shots that I think allows you to really um, get into that space. But also the other thing I read about it was about the title sequence, which we saw earlier, um, being created by, by, uh, by people who, in, in Brisbane actually, um, the mm-hmm. title sequence now heralded as one of the great uh, ones of all time, um, was made by people who a- had previously um, produce things like graphic design and that it, it's la- it's slowed down and layered and drawn over the top of photographic images in order to make that allusion to comic books and graphic novels. So I don't know whether or not that was part of Pizzolatto's um, brief or whether or not that's the guys on the ground in Brisbane, the people on the ground in Brisbane that made that connection. But it is it is kind of, it does have a, that, um, I don't know, that stillness about it.
5: And it's also a kind of pricey of the whole show in that its- sort of shallow juxtaposition of illusions, you know, like yeah. fetishized women's bodies, crazy southerners, mm-hmm. tortured men with, you know, the, the whole state is somehow in their brain here. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's the way in which, uh, I mean, you mentioned earlier mm-hmm. that all the women are fetishized and mm-hmm. sexualized, whereas the men get to have like the state, the fate of the state <laughs> impressed upon their faces.
0: It's also the land too, <laughs> yeah. because I remember the first time I saw the series, it was as if, the landscape was a third character, mm. a third lead character. Which in the
2: South I think is probably like a, a, a tradition a, a tradition in mm. cinema and stuff like that mm. as yeah. well. Um any yes. Uh oh, there's a few. That's
7: <laughs> nice. Yeah, fascinating conversation. Wanted just to throw one other thing that I thought was really interesting about the show in there, that it was basically about deregulated policing. I thought it was fascinating the way that like evidence kept getting lost. Yes. All the successive um, hurricanes they'd had mm. have washed oh, things away. Yeah. The way that there was all this police incompetence. The, 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 because, and you sort of made these allusions to, and I think Russ says it at one point, they suddenly realise there's all these people being killed out there on the periphery where no-one really cares. Mm. There's no cops out there. There's no sort of state apparatus mm. out there. Yeah. And, I mean, that's a sort of interesting, that's a sort of... Trope that came into U.S. crime fiction in the '80s with Reagan and budget cuts and mm. Reaganomics and all that sort of stuff, which I thought was a really, really fascinating aspect mm-hmm. of of this show and the fact that they actually can only solve the crime when they leave the police. Mm-hmm. So they leave, they step out of those state structures, mm. and suddenly they're they're effective and they're able to solve the crime, and and, and you know because they can think outside squares and they can do all these things. I just thought that was. Mm. Fascinating, and also about the, you know, that history of Louisiana, and all, yeah. all, the, all the natural disasters it's had that have just washed away mm. history, paperwork, mm. everything, you know?
4: You can be at the next... Yeah, <laughs> a palimpsest. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the kind of Western yeah, element exactly. of it as well.
5: Heartful I mean, the Reagan era, but also early in the 70s and the backlash against civil rights, we have mm. figures like um, Dirty Harry, who has mm. to sort of take the law into his own hands and mm. doesn't... He's, he's still a police officer but at the end of the first film. He, you know, he throws his badge. <laughs> Yeah. Mm.
7: Yeah. Really you know, ex- yep. sort
5: of mm. When the state itself yeah. is the issue. So here we mm-hmm. have institutional yeah. sexual abuse happening. Yeah.
7: Crime, yeah. yeah. The state You're very good. You should be doing
4: yeah. this for the podcast. Hold the yeah. microphone. <laughs> and, 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 then he, then, and that they actually... There's hints all the way through the series about police involvement as well. You know, Ma, um, Russ keeps saying, you know, I don't know how high this goes, and he refuses to talk to anyone above a particular level and that kind of thing. So that there is that really and strong getting, reading. And they're getting
7: pressure from the fundamentalist preacher who's got all
5: these inroads into the cops. Who
4: Power. Just
7: come, and he come, they come into work one day, and there he is talking yeah. to their boss. And his so cousin's how are you? A
5: senator as yeah. well, right? So it's state... Government, That's a great and, reading you know, of it. Re- religious organizations,
4: mm. Mm. Very and good. That the state, the state, the various state apparatus will collude together to prevent justice from being served, rather than the other way around. And so, like you say, there are progressive critiques of, of um, the state that that involve people acting on their conscience and acting from an ethical framework that they build themselves. And then Russ becomes the embodiment of that; that he kind of spends so much time thinking about how to behave in an ethical way, he starts out thinking, maybe I should top myself. And he kind of walks back in a Camusian sense and decides that, actually, I won't top myself. I'll bear witness. I'll, I'll, I'll do the right thing by, by other human beings.
7: Maybe there's no conspiracy. Maybe it's just massive, uh, what's the word, uh, incompetence too. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Massive yeah, incompetence. They,
5: and... come a- they come across him twice, right, They're all Childress. He came across him. Pelican Island, back back in '96, mm. whatever, and then the uh, two new detectives they cut him off, won't let him speak. Mm. You can when definitely cross
2: him outside. Yeah, we've been here a long time. Um, now we've got probably time for like a couple more questions, if uh, yes, sir, and then if there's anyone at the back that hasn't does one. To... Hi,
8: Parliament. um. Being a fan of the show, I've uh, obviously went to Google and tried to learn as much as I could about the show and how it was written. Um, and unfortunately, I came across um, an accusation by a lot of uh, people that... Nick uh, Pizzolato is mm. it? Uh, that plagiarised a lot of Rust Cole's role. And that was quite upsetting to me um, because I just l- loved his character so much and everything that he was quoting in the show. And, and if you allow me, I'll just read out one uh, example that the people are saying that it was quoted, um, plagiarised from Thomas Ligotti's The Conspiracy Against the Human Race. And here we have one from Cole saying, we became too self-aware, nature created as an aspect of nature separate from itself. We are creatures that should not exist by natural law. And from the book they said it's come from is, we know that nature has veered into the supernatural by fabricating a creature that cannot and should not exist by natural law and yet does. And obviously there's a lot more uh, comparisons, a lot more quotations. So I was wondering as a panel, if you'd seen this and looked into this and if you have an opinion about
5: this. I I saw that stuff about the Thomas Ligotti uh, work. Uh, I'm kind of okay with it because they're both plagiarizing anti-natalist ideas, right? These ideas are already there. And if he's getting, if he's sort of, I guess, I mean, cutting and pasting is not cool in terms of plagiarism, as an academic, I'm very against plagiarism. <laughs> but as someone putting you know, interesting words into a mouth or a character on TV, I'll give him a pass. Mm,
2: good. and um, <laughs> <laughs> any other, yes, a woman. Yeah. <laughs> just because it's good that the ladies yeah. Know, yeah, speak up. No, we've got one, oh. we've got one, we found one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's
0: great. Hi, I just wondered if um, you have any thoughts on the role of humour. Um, whether or not you think it's uh, to make us more comfortable or less comfortable.
5: (laughs) More comfortable. (laughs) 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 Because if you don't have that sort of um, banter between Rust and uh, Marty, if you don't have this kind of romance happening... Between them, and there's this kind of seduction process that Marty's trying to draw Rust out, and he I actually don't like him. I do like him, and this sort of back and forth that happens between, and they all get together, and it's resolved at the end. If you don't have that kind of uh, romantic comedic line in it, it's just horror, mm. right? And just a kind of straight and mm. weirdly kind of boring. Yeah,
0: like it, it, it's kind of a comic relief to resolve the
2: discomfort,
3: maybe. Yeah, <laughs> mm.
2: <laughs> I don't know. And, and also, I, yeah. I would say that, like, at some points when Rust is banging on, that, like, as much as as highbrow and interesting maybe as it is, but after a certain point, like, I think maybe Marty says what the viewer kind of is <laughs> thinking at, at points as well, which is kind of refreshing because you don't want to feel dumb as a viewer. And so you're kind of going, Ugh. you don't want to feel that way. You're like, no, I mean, I understand everything that's going on. The world flat place, right? Yeah, cool. And then, so you need someone like Marty, I think, to make you feel kind of more comfortable as a viewer. I don't mean like in the horror sense, but just kind of in like the, I guess maybe the juggling of intellectual mm. ideas to kind of go, it's cool as well. It's all right to kind of think, shut up a little bit. Yeah, I think it's yeah. interesting
5: that Marty is the character that does this then, because if he's such a kind of childish... And toxic individual, mm. to- toxic uh, has a kind of toxic masculinity. Then you are kind of being put into that position mm. as well.
2: So maybe it is uncomfortable. God, it you, do kind of, uh, you do
4: kind of, you do kind of switch in and out of Rust and Marty's mm. perspectives. I think, and I think um, that it then then becomes really important that both McConaughey and Harrelson are comic actors. They have, a, mm. they're very good at it, and I, may, I put mm. those pictures up for lols. But you know, they because they're just inherently funny. But they, they have, they've carried these movies before, many, many movies, where they have to have that kind of timing and that ability to make a situation lighter. And then the genius of this show, I think, is that they can switch in and out of that, and that Marty can be extremely funny and then beat the shit out of someone. Mm-hmm. And you're like, you're extremely confronted by that. Rust is even, I think Rust is very funny in some of the later interview um, sequences where he's <laughs> getting them to get him more beers. And, you know, he's he's it's extremely droll, but Rust mm-hmm. is, is funny, you know? I mean, they both have a kind of, um, yeah, levity and, and humour that um, mm-hmm. that not only gets them... Get, means that they get along with each other and it propels that romance forward. Yeah. Um, but, it, but it means that for the viewer you're not just relentlessly hammered with, you know, dismembered bodies and, you know, deformed faces and children in brothels, you know. It, it, it would be too much. It's it is interesting.
0: quite interesting that a lot of the shows that incorporated humour did very well. So, if you look at Twin Peaks, they had that play That's with humour. If you look yeah. at The X-Files, the humour in that was fantastic, um, built in with the drama, and it does pulls you in, pulls you out. I think structurally it's just very clever.
4: Even shows yeah. like Deadwood and yes. Mad Men, Sopranos, they have moments of just abject hilarity. They're so funny, you can't not laugh at Roger, you know, having a heart attack in Madman. In like, that's hilarious, you know. But there's these ideas that they, that you, you have to have the light with the dark, we told about that earlier, and, lightness and the dark and the funny and the serious and the good and the bad it's that kind of it's it's simplistic but it's how a lot of pop culture operates
2: thank you well great well thank you so much for coming this evening and i'd like you to put your hands together for the panel tonight Uh, karen Pickering, terry riddell and rodney tavera Thank you so much for having us ACME. Thanks, Rob. Um, and yeah, keep checking the ACME website because they do really fun things like this that aren't just about murdery shows. So you might like and them. And thanks to Jess Maguire. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> have a good night.
0: You have been listening to an ACME podcast. For more recordings of talks and live events, go to ACME Channel and the ACME website.